Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Trinity Baptist Church. The Lord is with you. I'll pray for you. I'll be praying for you. Uh, Just want you to know I'm praying for you. You're in my prayers. I wonder how many times you've used words like that this week. If you're a pastor, you you would have done it about 100 times. But all of us are constantly responding to people in our lives by promising to pray one way or another. And sometimes we actually do that, and sometimes we don't. I'm reminded how often I'll pray for you has become a cheap sort of religious cliche that I just have thrown out at times to people in need. It's what you're supposed to say. Sometimes people will say, will you pray for me? And you're not going to, what do you say? Uh, Yes, I will. Um, It'd be awkward denying it, but often no prayer follows. If we were more honest, we might look in the eye and say, probably not. I found that it's often useful when someone asks you to pray for them to say yes and to stop and pray right then, and that will keep your promises at that point. A few years ago, there was another one of those awful mass shootings in California where 14 people were killed, and the New York Daily News ran a cover story a few days later saying, God isn't fixing this. And it was a sarcastic article mocking the tweets of Christian politicians who were sending their thoughts and prayers to the people in California. Our world often hears this, I'll pray for you. I'm sending you my prayers, my thoughts and prayers. They hear that as a religious cliche, and it's empty words mostly. What does it mean to pray for someone else? What is that even about? How does that work? How do you do it authentically? How many promises of prayer do you need on your petition before God will respond to the thing you want done? Surely, Praying for one another is more than getting names on a petition, isn't it? I was thinking about this this week and thought I would Google, I'll pray for you and see if I found any interesting stories. Well, one of the things that came up was uh, something that surprised me. I'm not a contemporary country Western music fan, just not who I am. So I did not anticipate encountering Joel Lowenstein and his song, Pray For You. When I saw the link to the video, I thought it might be a Christian country western song about praying for people and intercessory prayer, so uh, I clicked on it and I was a little surprised by the lyrics. Now, it's a sad song, as many country western songs are, about a man who hasn't been to church in a long time and he decides to go. His life is in something of a mess, surprisingly. He's had his heart broken by his lover and he's angry. The preacher preached a sermon in church that day about loving everybody, about not hating or condemning those who've wronged them, but to pray for them and let the good Lord do his job. So he says he decided he would take the high road and pray for his ex. Here's the chorus. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. I think he missed the point. 
I can't claim to understand how intercessory prayer works and how it is that someone praying for me or my praying for someone else involves God in that life, in that situation. I, I can't explain it, but I, I can't deny that biblically there is a consistent call for us to pray for each other. It's in there all through scripture. And there are examples, one story after another, of one person praying for another, or Abraham praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, or Moses praying for the people of Israel, and David praying for his, his, his people. It, it runs all the way through, even to Jesus praying for us in John 17. There are a lot of examples of that, and I can't deny that. And I, I can't deny the strong compulsion I feel to pray for others, particularly those that I love. We feel compelled to do that, and we find some peace in knowing that others are praying for us as well. Even if I can't explain intercessory prayer, I can't deny it either. It's present in Scripture. I think what I need, and probably what you need, is a teacher, someone to help us understand how to do this better. How do we pray for those that we care about? Paul and his companions visited the city of Philippi on his second missionary journey while he was bearing witness to people throughout Asia Minor and into Greece. A church was planted there in Philippi right in the midst of much opposition. And over time, that particular congregation seemed to become a group of Paul's dearest friends. He interacted with them regularly. He visited them again on his third missionary journey, and he was arrested and put in, taken to jail in Caesarea and ultimately to Rome. And while he was in jail at Rome, they sent gifts to him by one of their church leaders, a man named Epaphroditus. And when Epaphroditus got there to Paul's prison cell and brought the gift, he also brought news that the church was struggling with a sense of unity. There was an kind of a beginning fissure, a crack opening up in the fellowship. And Epaphroditus became ill and had to stay a while before he could return home. So when he was ready to go back to Macedonia, back to Philippi, Paul wrote this little short letter called Philippians, to send to the church and to address all kinds of things, to let them know how he was doing, sort of a missionary report, uh, because they were concerned for him, to say thank you to them for the financial gift that they had sent to help support him, and, and also to address, however subtly, uh, the need for unity in that congregation, and affection, and humility, and service, and mutual love. His letter to the Philippian church is really a kind of love letter. It really is. He reminds them of Christ's sacrificial love for them and calls them to that same kind of sacrificial love for each other. And here's how he opens the letter in verses 1 through 11. I want to invite you to read this aloud with me. Would you read God's word together? Together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. For God, it is right for me to think this way about all of you 
because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. If we want to learn to pray, Paul might be one of our best teachers. He opens almost every one of his letters with a word of prayer specifically for the congregation he's addressing. And here you hear, you, you listen in and you hear in this prayer, Paul's deep affection for these people. I thank God every time I think of you in verse three. Verse four, I always pray for you with joy. We've been partners in the gospel from the first day till now. I'm confident of God's work among you. It's right for me to think of you all in this way. You have me in your heart. They've supported Paul, shared God's grace in his ministry and imprisonment, and he longs for them with the compassion of Christ Jesus. You hear that affection just dripping from that opening word. He cares for these people. And that affection that flows between Paul and his friends in Philippi is the source of a good bit of Paul's joy, even in circumstances like a Roman imprisonment. This love letter opens with one of the greatest expressions of love available to any of us to share with each other, the loving act of intercessory prayer, of praying for those that we care about. As he says, he always prays for them with joy. Paul, who loves them so dearly, prays for them deeply. And the opening verse is a great place for us to learn to pray for others, especially for those that are dear to us, some of them sitting in the same room with you this morning. When Paul says, I'll pray for you, he does that with several assumptions that we ought to be clear about and that we best not ignore when we pray for those that we love. One of the things Paul assumes as he prays is that the whole life of the person he's praying for matters to God, body and spirit, body and character, inside and out. And he prays for both. In fact, for Paul, it's often far more important to dwell upon their character and the way that God is working to shape them into Christ's likeness than it is to pray for their comfort. But both matter to God, and he keeps that in mind when he prays for people. A second assumption he has is that God works in people's lives to accomplish his purposes, and prayer is somehow involved in that as an instrument, whether we can explain it or not. And so Paul can continue the work that he's been involved in with God, working in the lives of the people in Philippi, even though he is hundreds of miles away in a Roman cell. His connection with them is his prayer for them, and he believes that God is at work in their lives and in their life together to bring it to completion by the day of Christ. And he prays for them to continue to participate with God in that work. The third assumption he has is that he's persuaded God can do more in our lives than we can imagine. And our prayers need to stretch to that possibility. Uh, in Ephesians, there's that often quoted statement of Paul, now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than we are able to think, imagine, or ask. That's how Paul thinks about prayer. God can do 
far more than we can imagine, and our prayers need to stretch to encompass a God who is like that. Those are some of his assumptions. So if we want to pray well for those that we love, how might we proceed if Paul is our teacher? One is to pray for more than their physical needs. Pray for the kind of person they are becoming. It's not wrong to pray for their physical needs. Often that's what generates the prayer request in the first place. You know, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I don't remember anybody ever coming to me and say, Pastor, would you pray for my character? Would you pray? I never, don't think anybody's ever asked me to do that. They, they want prayer for their children. They want prayer for their spouses. They want prayer for their jobs. They want prayer for all these things in this physical world. And that's fine because those are the needs that we have in our life. But for Paul, it is don't stop there. Uh, don't be limited to the physical needs of those that you pray for. Pray for the kind of person that they are becoming. We pray for others' burdens to be lifted, and Paul prays often that they might have stronger backs. We pray for relationships to be easy and simple, and Paul prays for love to abound and for us to learn to love those who are hard to love. We pray for blessings, meaning physical well-being and happiness, and Paul prays for his friends here to be able to choose what is right and what is best so their, their lives may be pure and blameless by the day of Christ and that they might bear an abundant harvest of the fruit of righteousness for the glory of God. That's a different way of thinking and praying, a different kind of prayer than we often pray. When people say, pray for me, uh, it needs to flip a little switch in our mind that says, yes, I'll pray about this, but I'm going to pray about more than that because God has a care and concern for your whole life, not just for your comfort and your physical well-being. Paul dearly loves these people, so when he prays for them, he takes to an account more than their comfort as the object of his prayer. Out of affection, he prays for their character. He wants them to be the kind of people that God longs for them to be. Our model in praying this way is not just Paul. It's also the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 has this puzzling verse. Likewise, this is Romans 8, 26, 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't understand that, but the promise is that when we don't know how to pray, when our words are mumbling and stumbling or just silent because we don't know what to ask, that doesn't mean no prayer is taking place. The one who is closer than the air we breathe is praying for us, taking what we truly need and interpreting that to God so that our needs are being expressed before God the Father. That's the promise there. And it's not just the Spirit, it's Jesus himself, the risen Lord, the ascended Christ. Romans 8.34, a few verses later, says, It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Jesus is praying for us. Our needs are being translated to the presence of God by the Holy Spirit who surrounds us, by Jesus who died for us. He prays for more than our physical well-being. When God's Spirit or God's Son intercedes for us with the Father, it's with full need of what we most deeply 
need, full knowledge of what we most deeply need and what God passionately longs for in our lives. We often don't know what those things are. We need someone to pray for us. I think that helps me understand a little more clearly what it means when I say, I will pray for you. I don't think it means simply I'll pray about you or I'll pray about your prayer request. It means that I will stand in your place. It means I will pray on your behalf. When you don't know what to pray, you may need someone to pray for you. When you don't think you have enough faith to pray, you may need someone to pray for you. When you aren't thinking clearly, materially, or lovingly about your life and your relationships, you may need someone to pray for you. Stand in your place. I got to pondering this a number of years ago when a friend of mine asked me to pray for their adolescent son who was just making a mess of his life. Now, I'm pretty sure what she meant when she asked for prayer for her son was pray that he'll behave himself. Pray that he'll straighten out his life. Pray that my life will be less chaotic. I, I understand that because I had a son also. But as I thought about my responsibility to pray for this young man, who, by the way, right now is just doing incredibly well as a grown-up man with children of his own. I wouldn't attribute it to any prayers I prayed, but it's good to see God's work in a life after that. I thought about my responsibility as life, and it seems to me that if I said I was committing myself to pray for him, it's that I would pray, to put it bluntly, as he would pray if he had good sense. I would ask for those things that a person in his right mind would ask for that I would pray for those things to be in his life. My role was to step in and pray in his stead, not just pray about him. What would he ask for if he had good sense? That's praying for someone, standing in. To say it another way, if we believe like Paul that our whole lives matter to God inside and out, if we believe that God works to accomplish his purposes in our lives and is able to do things beyond our imagination, and if we believe that somehow prayer plays a role in this, we pray for one another. We step in and ask God to make it so. That's one thing we could learn from Paul, that we take into account more than the physical need. We pray for the whole person. We also pray as we pray for one another. We pray that God's purposes will be completed. Paul's words in Philippians 1.6 are frequently quoted. I'm, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Some translations will tr render that as, uh, I'm confident that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And because it says in you, we hear it personally. But the you there is plural. It's a Texas y'all. And that's why it's translated here, among you. God began a good work among you. Paul is confident that God is going to bring that good work to fulfillment. It's not just a personal promise. It is a plural. The good work is a corporate work that God has done in his church in Philippi. And he's praying that the church will be empowered by God's working among them to become all that God intended it to be by the day of Christ Jesus. He's praying for the church's future is what he's praying for. He doesn't pray for ease for the church. He doesn't pray that they would be spared persecution. He prays for a completed work to be done. What ultimately matters for Paul is not his comfort, not his release from jail, although he says later that he believes the prayers of the Philippians are going to contribute to his release. But he says even if 
I don't get released. Even if God doesn't answer the prayers in that way, I'm not concerned about my comfort. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What ultimately matters is not the Philippians' comfort or ease or their freedom from persecution. What matters is God's work being completed among them. Verse 11 says, to the glory and praise of God. God started something really good in Philippi when Paul was there. And even though Paul left, God was continuing to do that work. And Paul is simply asking, Lord, would you bring that work to fulfillment, to completion? 73 years ago this week, God began something really good in San Antonio. It's called Trinity Baptist Church. Next week, we celebrate our anniversary, or our birthday together. And God began that work, and he has been faithful to continue that work. But know this, that God is not through with that work. He is not finished yet. And our prayer, when you pray for your church, pray, pray that God who began the good work among us will bring it to completion by the day of Christ, that God will bring the work to fulfillment and to, to completion. That means that God develop among us love and maturity and discernment and depth of insight and understanding and knowledge and sincerity and integrity and moral purity and transparency and blamelessness and being no cause of stumbling to others and righteousness of character. All those things Paul talks about in this letter, we pray for God to do among us, that God would bring his work to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. God takes the initiative in beginning the work. God engages our lives in the process, and God is the one who brings it to completion. He is Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is the one that we, we, we pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled in the lives of those we pray for. Paul may be absent from Philippi, but ultimately it's God's work, not Paul's, that needs to be completed. He may be absent from Philippi, but prayer allows him to participate still in the lives of these that he cares about, even from a prison cell. And he prays for the glory and praise of God to be magnified in the lives of these he loves. Because God is not absent even when Paul is. The thing that matters most to Paul can continue because it is a work of God, not a work of Paul, and God will bring it to completion. If your life includes relationships with people whose spiritual growth and their well-being are of ultimate concern to you, it matters to you, you can pray with confidence that even though you may be separated from them in, in geographically by days or hours, God is still at work taking care of the things that matter most to you. One definition of prayer is a conversation with God about um, something that is a mutual concern. And when we pray for the spiritual well-being of those that we care about, know that it's a bigger concern of God's than it is of ours. And we can pray with confidence. There's a third thing that I think Paul could teach us about praying for those that we care about, and that is when we pray for one another, we need to stretch our prayers toward God's great power to act in our lives. Paul's prayer for his friends is a great vision he holds about what God is capable of doing in people's lives. He knows that because of what he's seen happen in his own life. And he is praying for these people in Philippi, Epaphroditus and uh, Euodia and Syntyche and 
others whose names we do not know, Lydia and others. He prays for them and he imagines God's work being completed in their lives. And he stretches his prayer. And he says, this is my prayer. This is what he says. This is my prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. So that in the day of Christ, you may be pure and blameless having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God causes his love to abound to his people. I pray that in Trinity Baptist Church, he would say, every one of you would have hearts overflowing with love for each other. You can't contain it. And as a result, you would be able to discern the things that are best. What's the right thing to do, the right thing to say, the right way to act? the thing that needs to be done, you'd be able to discern that because you're living with love and knowledge of each other and knowledge of God. And as a result of that, your lives are blameless. People can't point at you and say, it's your fault that the world's the way it is. You're blameless. There's nothing to be called into account for. And pure, he says, transparent, sincere, whole, full of integrity. That's how he prays. He stretches his prayers to imagine real human beings like a Roman jailer and a woman who is a businesswoman in, in Philippi and all the others, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, he imagines those people living lives just overflowing with love. And when we pray for one another, we need to stretch a little bit and see that. Abounding is one of Paul's favorite words. It, it shows up tw 39 times in the New Testament. 26 of those are in Paul's writings. Uh, it characterizes what Christ has ushered in through his resurrection and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. He's ushered in an abundance, an overflowing of faith and word and knowledge and zeal and wisdom and comfort and generosity and thanksgiving and good works. All of those are things Paul speaks of as being overflowing in the lives of his people. And here it's overflowing love. See, Paul imagines that God can overcome the selfishness that is so much a part of all of our lives. That's an inherent part of the human life. God can overcome that self-protective shield we erect around our heart to keep other people out and to keep other people from really knowing us. God can dissolve the demandingness that we have that seeks to be in control of other people's lives and has to be in the driver's seat all the time. And he can replace all of those kinds of things with an overflowing of Calvary love, of love that looks like the sacrifice of Jesus. That's why he says in chapter 2 of Philippians, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. River overflowing its banks, this mature love can overflow our lives. God can teach his people to discern his will, to be able to choose what is right in the midst of the world's confusion. Choosing good over evil, best over good, knowing what is valuable, knowing how to love other people best and focused on their need. Verse 11 says, God can fulfill his purposes in us by changing our life towards what is right and just, like a tree covered with fruit, the fruit of righteousness. God can make our lives more and more authentic, the real thing, blameless, marked by integrity. He can transform our hearts in such a way that we can live with each other in love in this dark world. All of this is possible. And when we pray, God, you know, help Joey on his test next week. That's good. Pray for Joey and his test.
When you pray, stretch your prayers a bit to think about what God could truly do in Joey's life, whether he's an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old. God is not done yet. Bring that work to completion, God. How small our prayers often sound compared to Paul. He had such a vision for what a potential life in Christ could look like, and he stretched his prayers toward that vision. It comes down to this, that intercessory prayer is a product of a life invested in the purposes of God in the world. It's one piece of this life in Christ that binds us all together and connects us as we pray for one another. We pray for one another because we love and because we care. And the more deeply we care, the more we learn to pray about the things that matter most. I'll pray for you. I'm praying for you. Just want you to know you're in my prayers. I wonder how many times you and I might utter those words, either vocally or at least in our minds, in the week ahead. I wonder how many forms of human need will cross our path in the days just in front of us. We have no way of knowing. And I wonder how often we'll feel compelled to say, I'll pray for you. I wonder if you and I will be able to rid our lives of I'll pray for you as a cheap religious cliche that we toss to people in need. I wonder if we will practice praying for one another, those we love, with something that begins to approach the depth and richness of Paul's prayer for those that he loved. Let's pray together. Lord, we have so much to learn about this life in Christ. Some of us have been pursuing it for more than half a century, some far longer than that. And yet we have so much to learn. And we have much to learn together about how we do this thing with one another as the body of Christ. So we ask, Lord, like your disciples asked you a long time ago, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to intercede. Help us to have faith to do that when we don't understand how it works because we don't need to. Help us to do it with a sense of your interest in the whole life of those we pray for. And with an imagination, it expands to take into account all that you're capable of doing in those for whom we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.